Welcome back to Divorced and Done. I'm Rob Woodward, joined by Darren Schmidt. We're family lawyers, helping you navigate the six divorced and done steps to move through your divorce quickly and efficiently without bankrupting yourself emotionally or financially. Everything we talk about in this show is for your information, but it is not legal advice or legal opinion of any kind. Darren Schmidt, how you doing? I am so good, Rob. I am happy to be here, happy to be in the listener's car, their laundry room, their kitchen table, wherever they're listening to us. I am happy and grateful to be along for the fun ride. How are you doing? <laughs> you know, you have the hardest job of both of us, because I think almost word for word off the top of every episode, I say the exact same thing that I now have it memorized. We don't pre-record it. We don't do any of that. I just say it and we roll into it. And I don't know if you sit there and go, oh, good Lord, he's going to ask me how we doing. And I have to think of something to say. And that's tough. So you know what? Kudos to you. Props to you. Thank you for being here, Darren Schmidt. But I we know why I have, we don't often have interesting things to say that we're doing. Like we don't know, like here's, here's some fantastic thing I did, or I'm not going to bore the listener about some minutia in my life. I, I respect their time. It's just, we're good. We're happy to be here. We often talk before the podcast starts, sometimes longer, sometimes not as long, but, um, you know, we talk about what this is and what we're doing here and, it, it's been a project for us for coming up on almost two years and we keep showing up. We keep doing it because there's a dedicated group of people on the other side of this that show up and do it with us. So here we are. And if you do have questions for us, because as always, questions do power the podcast. You can send them via email, lawyers talking about divorce at gmail.com or send us a voicemail through the SpeakPipe, speakpipe.com slash done and A-N-D, and we'd love to hear from you and move you to the front of the line. Darren Schmidt, shall we roll into our questions? Yep, and you have one on your end that you wanted to start with that I thought was awesome. Ah. So this was a question, and I've had it for a little bit of time. Um, we don't normally reveal who sends these questions, but I will in this instance. I have a cousin who is in his 20s, and I, I I don't know that he's still listening anymore, but during the pandemic, he was at home, not at work. He listened to all of these, and I so appreciated it. So this is his question. And compliments. So I'm going to read his compliment as well, but young man in his 20s, and he's single. I just wanted to say that I love the podcast even without a divorce in my life. It offers so much insight and perspective on a topic no one wants to talk about. One thing I'd be interested in learning more about, TV dramas and random stories depict a world where men get nothing out of a divorce and end up angry, broke, and separated from their family. Given everything I've learned from Divorced and Done, I find this incredibly hard to believe, but is this accurate? I want to see if you both have more insight on this piece. Great question. Yeah, so is the stereotype of the, I guess, the the single father, uh, maybe you're picturing an image of a guy standing there holding the pockets out of his pants with no money, uh, sad, downtrodden, getting beat up by the divorce system. Is that accurate? 
the way Hollywood portrays it. And I think if you go on Reddit or you go on YouTube or you certainly go on TikTok, because I see that, and you read the comments on some of my posts that I do on TikTok, many people believe that that is actually true, that the family court system leaves the man uh, just totally destroyed and he has nothing and his life starts from scratch. And I think, Rob, I'll pass it back to you, but we don't find that to be true. We don't find there to be gender bias through the family law system. And as we know, anyone listening to this podcast would agree with us. The steps are basically the substantive steps. What are you doing with your kids? Once that's figured out, child support flows from guidelines. Those guidelines are etched in stone. There's no getting around them. Division of property and debt, that is normally, if not almost always, divided equally. And then spousal support, which stems from the roles the parties played in their relationship or marriage. So I don't think those steps, if you work through them, the way that the legislation says you should, the way our courts have interpreted those steps to work, that it is always the case that one spouse, one gender, always walks away from that with less than the other spouse. But uh, what what do you think, Rob? One of the first lessons that I learned when we started practicing family law, you and I almost about 10 years ago, was the very firm dismissal in many judgments from our courts, rejecting the tender years doctrine. Hmm. And if anyone wants to Google this, you can read about it. And the, the Wikipedia headnote says, the tender years doctrine is a legal principle in family law since the late 19th century. It presumes that during a child's tender years, meaning young years, the mother should have custody of the child. The doctrine often arises in divorce proceedings. So this was a notion, was kicking around, uh, I think exactly as my cousin here has asked, and popular media depicts, uh, as you say, the, the, a, the inside out pocket penniless man because courts favor women. Our courts have worked very hard I would say probably in the last 20, even 30 years to move away from that notion to say we know everyone can be parents and we know everyone can be involved. And you and I know as divorce practitioners that our courts don't reward the people that fight the hardest or the most aggressive or produce the nastiest materials, but it's the people that can stay out of court resolve as many issues between themselves as they can reasonably. So you're narrowing the issues that are before our court where you're going to get the best outcomes. And that's why you and I developed the divorced and done steps. And as we say, it's not like we're brilliant geniuses uh, coming up with uh, legal and psychological principles to make this work. But all we've done is taken those heads of matters that you need to deal with in your divorce from parenting to support property and getting to the final end, signing your agreement and being done saying, how can we do this more efficiently? And we both have clients and some we can remember some we've had so many we can't, but it's those people that are reasonable that come to us 
that in a certain period of time, maybe it's a few months, maybe a little longer, but can come to an agreement. And if you come to an agreement and you follow these steps, you're not going to be penniless. The courts aren't going to do terrible things to you because you're a reasonable person. And by staying that course, I think we avoid that stereotype. You and I have talked about many times about shopping for lawyers and what a poor position people can put themselves in right off the top by saying, I need the pit bull, I need the most aggressive, I need the most expensive practitioner right off the top because I'm going scorched earth and I'm going to get a fabulous, a fabulous advantage at first instance. And you and I know that simply is not the case. And folks that do take that uh, course of action or that path immediately in their proceedings are more likely to end up that penniless stereotype than the person who is more pragmatic, follows the steps and says, I'm going to get through this. There is life beyond this divorce. And as you say, Darren, not making your divorce part of your identity. Yeah, I think about if you really look at the end result of any divorce or family case, whether it's by agreement or by court order or some combination of them, you've made agreements on some things and needed the court to weigh in on others, and you really look at the end result, how often are those results truly unfair, globally unfair? Lopsided, yeah. And it's pretty rare that that happens. And what I mean by that is, who ends up with more parenting time through the case? Typically, courts are able to see what has happened in the past, what is in the best interests of the children. They may have heard from some experts. The court has made a informed decision about where the kids should be living and how much time they spend between two households. Child support, as I've said, that's very easy. That just flows from guidelines that our federal government has established. So that's really not that hard. Dividing property, once again, not that hard. It's usually, if not almost always, divided equally. And then spousal support. What roles were assumed during the relationship? We see a lot of just specifically on the spousal support issue. A lot of commentary I see online and I sort of glaze over it now. Initially, I was sort of interested in why people on particularly TikTok, because that's where I hang out, why they were so interested in why they thought spousal support was a scam or alimony, as it's called in the US. And a lot of it's just based on misunderstandings about what the court's trying to do, the principles of spousal support. At its core, spousal support is if one party was put at an economic disadvantage by being in that relationship. Now that it's over, we don't just kick them out and say, go get a job. Because uh, that's not what marriage or a relationship is. It's a joint endeavor, emotional and economic. So a court's not going to say it's only fair that you just sever the relationship and there be no support flowing from one party to the other in certain clear circumstances. So overall, you work through all of those issues and you go, how often is it the case that the court really just gets it wrong front to back? And it's almost never the case that a court gets it wrong front to back or the parties make a bad deal front to back. If you have lawyers, you're working through the disclosure. You're working through all the facts. You're pausing to think about whether that agreement really suits your needs. And there's negotiations that are going on not for days, not for weeks, 
but for months or even years before you land on that agreement. How can you look at that overall and say, yeah, this process normally um, winds up favoring one gender over the other or just being patently unfair? You can't. It's th- There's fairness built into the whole thing front to back. So it's interesting Hollywood depicts it one way, but in reality, it's a very slow, kind of boring, pretty fair process, I think, overall. As we've talked about before, do you remember the 1979 Oscar uh, film of the year? Uh, Dustin Hoffman. Very good. um, Meryl Streep. Meryl Streep. Kramer versus Kramer. Yes. And I will not go down this tangent because our listeners don't want to hear it again. But you and I have talked about the advent of no-fault divorce uh, in Canada with the passage of the 1968 uh, Divorce Act and moving toward a more open divorce process in the U.S. really happened the 50s into the 1960s. Before then, you couldn't really get divorced without litigating about who was bad or who was wrong or somebody had harmed somebody. So divorce was a trendy, interesting thing, uh, a new thing really coming out of the 60s uh, and the cultural changes we all experienced in that time. But into the 70s and then 1979, Kramer versus Kramer. It was interesting because that movie, it's a custody battle between Meryl Streep and Dustin Hoffman about their son. And it's jazzed up. Uh, But from doing this, as you say, Darren, this isn't interesting. The big scary thing that happened, your relationship ended, is over. Now it's likely an exercise in where do your kids need to be and then accounting. And hopefully, again, everyone just moves forward and you move on with your life. Cool. All right. Let's do uh, maybe a question or two on the heels of that wonderful personal question that you got from your cousin. Um, All right. Title of this question is Respondent Does Not File a Response. Okay. Let's uh, find out what's going on here. Listener says, Spouse has ignored all correspondence from my lawyer and did not respond within the 30-day time frame to the court application that we served him with. Now we are going to an uncontested trial. What can I ask for in regards to our matrimonial home? Both our names are on the title to the house. We are located in Ontario. Okay, thank you for the question. Neither Rob nor I live in Ontario, practice in Ontario, or are intimately familiar at all with the Ontario Division of Property Regime. But at its core, your question is, you have a trial date set. The other side didn't respond. They may or may not show up, but presuming they don't, number one, more broadly, I think the question is, what can you expect? What will that trial look like? And how are you going to divide that house? What Do, do you want to buy out? Is it going to be sold? What's going to happen there? So Rob, uh, on this question, pretty straightforward in terms of how they put it to us, but what are some thoughts that pop into your head? I think this is going to go one of two ways. Either number one, this is a unicorn and this is a truly uncontested trial. Number two, this won't be an uncontested trial and this is a normal family file. 
and I will start with the unicorn piece at the beginning. And I call this a unicorn because it is so rare we see matters go truly uncontested where someone doesn't show up. I have had in my 10 years now, or almost 10 years at the bar, one file that was truly uncontested in that someone didn't show up. I represented uh, mom. Dad was served with numerous applications. And I believe at the very end of it, when we got property judgments, parenting orders, and support orders against him, the matter had been in court between 15 and 20 times. And each of those 15 or 20 times before, matters had been adjourned to allow him to show up. Now, because he hadn't, there were costs ordered against him. Um, but the court, the notion is, always gave him an opportunity to show up. So this continued over and over again for a really long time before the court finally put their foot down and said, enough is enough. We're going to make a final order and basically give you everything that you want. And because there wasn't very much property between the people, as I recall, there were some maybe some sale proceeds from a house, but that was it, and some debt. She basically got all the sale proceeds to put them toward the debt, had care of the children, and support was ongoing. Uh, the biggest problem she would have, of course, was collecting on that support from someone that didn't want to participate. But that was, in my mind, the quote-unquote uncontested file, and it took a long time to get there. For this listener, if this is truly uncontested, uh, depending on what other matrimonial properties on the table, if there's debts or other pieces, uh, if she wants to stay in the home, perhaps that's reasonable, but she'd have to maintain the property. Uh, does it need to be sold? If you can't maintain that property, should it be sold? If he's not showing up, what's going to happen with the potential sale proceeds from the sale of the home? Because both of your names are, as she says, on the title to the home. Uh, maybe those can go toward paying off some um, debts if there's net sale proceeds or something else. But if this is truly an uncontested trial, the judge would give you wide berth to sort of say what you're looking for and why, and given perhaps the history, how long this has been in court or not, or how serious these trial dates are, particularly if he has filed no materials or he doesn't show up, you may or may not get that final remedy. Now that leads me to my next point. If this is a normal file, uh, I, given my experience in family court, it is so rare that things are truly uncontested. And a court's not going to give someone every opportunity to show up. If this was something uh, like an interlocutory application, an application on the way to chambers, or excuse me, on the way to trial, for something like, we need to list the house and sell it, or I need support, and he's had an opportunity to show up or hasn't filed materials, a judge is more likely to make a decision in that situation. But because it's a chamber's decision, it's not a final decision. Final decisions can only come out of trials. And in this situation, it, it appears you have a trial date. Uh, I would imagine if it's only been 30 days, the court may want to do something like set a pretrial conference or give any other opportunity for the opposing party here to have a response, show up, say something before that judge gets to the point of saying, I have enough information here. 
I'm going to make a decision so that we both can be finished and move on. As you said in our previous question, Darren, the way our matrimonial property legislation and regime is set up across the country, it is one of fairness. So we don't have someone standing on the street corners with their pockets turned inside out. In this instance, again, this this may be that unicorn of a situation where dad was served and this application can properly go forward dealing with the house and he doesn't show up and they'll get a final order. Maybe, but I don't think it's likely. And because you're dealing with a house, which is the biggest asset most anybody owns and his name's on it, you can expect him to show up. What do you think? I'm going to make a bold assumption that it's a unicorn. And Ooh. because you've already talked all about the, it's probably not a unicorn, but let's assume yeah. it is. Let's assume it. Yeah, okay. So we don't know what his position is on the house. I'm going to assume like most people, your house is your biggest asset. That's where almost Absolutely. all of your net worth is tied into. Maybe you're fortunate and you have a bunch of liquidity elsewhere. I don't know, but let's just assume the house is where most of your net worth is parked. There's probably not another, there's probably not enough other assets to move around to equally divide it, presuming that's the path we're going down to say you keep the house and he or she keeps all the other stuff. So I see this as the court, if it is a unicorn situation and we can make some general assumptions, would likely say, okay, there's not enough other stuff to equally divide this if we just gave you the house. So the house would inevitably have to be sold. The court may have a problem with that, not knowing what his position is on it. Or the judge just may say, yeah, sell it um, and would then determine what percentage or a particular number of sale net sale proceeds after payout of the mortgage that you should get and he should get. Or the court may say, sell it, put the sale proceeds in trust, and then have your lawyer come back, set another hearing date, serve the opposing party with it, and you guys can fight about what we should do with the net sale proceeds. But what I'm going to do right now is make an interim order, as you suggested, Rob, saying, let's sell the house, let's pay off, pay out the mortgage in the line of credit, put the sale proceeds in trust, and then if you and him can't agree on how to divide those proceeds, come back and speak to me and I'll make a further order. That probably, if if we're going down the unicorn path, is where we're likely headed on this, I would assume. Um unless you really want the house and there's enough other stuff to move around where you can convince the judge, hey, give me the house, I'll give him all the rest of the stuff, and away we go, in which case the judge may say, that's a wonderful idea, let's do that. But if there's not enough other stuff, get the house sold, get the sale proceeds sitting in trust, figure out how you want to divide it if you can't go back to court. So cool. Enjoy. All right, let's do one more question before we go away from your ears and you can move on with your day. Uh, this is just called questions, and this is a bit choppy, so bear with me. But you know what? We like every question that comes in, so this is, this is kind of fun. Questions. Hi, this is me. They say their name, but we don't say names. Hi, this is me. Actually, I'm basically from India, but I'm studying right now in Montreal, Quebec. And now last year in the summer, I moved to New Brunswick and applied for my husband, who is in Montreal right now. And we want to get a divorce. Uh, we are living separately for approximately one year. How can I apply as I'm only doing a part-time job and I'm stressed about this and our relationship has been toxic? Please help me. Okay, well, I, and I've tried my best to work through the question because it's not written exactly how I've read it. But 
listener is originally from India, was living in Montreal, moved to New Brunswick for studies. Her husband is living in Montreal. We don't know how long she's lived in New Brunswick. So the first thing that pops into my mind is you have to live in one province for at least a year Absolutely. for divorce in that province. There's a one-year residency requirement. So if you haven't lived in New Brunswick for one year and you've moved from Montreal, you may not have standing anywhere to apply for a divorce until you've lived in New Brunswick for one year. Or you could file in Quebec stating that your ex-spouse has habitually resided in Quebec for one year, presuming that that's true. But that's sort of the threshold inquiry that pops into my mind. You have to live in one province for at least one year for you to be able to file in that province, or your ex-spouse has to habitually reside in the province in which you're filing for at least one year. Someone has to live somewhere for one year. That's the gist of it. As for how do you do this, and you're stressed and the part-time job and all the other emotional, financial stressors that are at play right now. Rob, what do you say to that? Because lots of people feel that way. And, and we're not a uh, emotions podcast per se. We're a legal podcast, but everyone's kind of dealing with this stuff. How, how do we help people with these things? Well, this is why we've designed the Divorced and Done Steps. And starting at step one is separate and apart, and everybody is safe. So in this instance, we know you're physically separate and apart, which is really good. But she talks about stress and a toxic relationship. So my concern is, are you still talking to each other? Because if you're physically not together, what sort of contact are you having? Do you have all of your stuff with you? Or are there still things in Montreal? And are you traveling back and forth? Because if that's the case, you're not really separate and apart, even though in your new, you're in New Brunswick. The other question I would ask the listener is, is New Brunswick her home now? Even though she's there for school, how long is she there? Does she plan on being there long term? Or is India home? And I think assuming there's no children, because we don't know in this question, the sooner she can answer those questions about where her future life will be and start to look forward to what the tomorrows will be and not the yesterdays, that's how you really get separate and apart. And then it makes dealing with whatever individual issues they may have uh, that much easier. Beautiful. Beautiful. Divorced and done. There we go. We're thinking about tomorrow, not yesterday. We're thinking about moving through those steps Ideally, sequentially, although that doesn't always happen, but at least thinking them as watertight things, these watertight compartments, we don't try and blend the issues together and view them all contextually and unique and all of that. They are issues that you march through and view them as distinct things and you go through them as best as you can and you keep working through the steps and you keep working them and working them and working them. And you get the help you need on the emotional side. If you need some counseling or those other things, we really encourage you to get those things. Uh, don't pay your lawyer to be your counselor. And if you get a lawyer, get that lawyer to help you move through all of these steps in a systematic way so that you can be done. And we're not thinking about all the bad stuff that happened. We're thinking about a better tomorrow, being divorced and done. Darren Schmidt, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. I'm Rob Woodward. Thank you for being with me. This has been Divorced and Done, and we look forward to being with you again.